Okay, let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Father, we pray for everybody in our school who is uh, getting sick. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, heal them or and you would re- return them back to uh, optimal health. And Father, I pray that as we continue to study your word uh, today, that you would build us up and you would continue to equip us to, to serve you and to uh, glorify you and become more like your son. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so over the past 12 weeks, we've been answering three questions. What does a society think about God? What does that society think about man? And what does a society think about, a Christian society think about law? So, uh, well, we, we're getting to time today. We're going to spend the next few weeks answering that question. What does a Christian society think about time? And it's interesting, I don't know if you know this or not, uh, Judaism and Christianity were unique in the ancient world with respect to their view of time. Uh, They both taught that time moves forward in a straight line. It's linear. That means it has a beginning and it has an end. Now, this doesn't sound like a life-altering concept to us because we've, we've been immersed in Christianity for as long as we've been alive. But once upon a time, this linear view of time was unique only to Christianity and to Judaism. Uh, in fact, it was unheard of outside of the tiny nation of Israel before the Lord, before Christ came. So people these days in the West, they hardly even think about time, maybe to remind themselves that they don't have enough of it. But other than that, they don't give much thought to the underlying nature of time. Time is something that's natural to us. Something that everyone knows is a straight line series of events, just one thing after another. But really, when you come to think about it, without a Christian worldview, how does anyone know this for sure? How do you know that time is linear? You know, we have a saying that history repeats itself, but does it? Does it truly repeat itself? What do we mean when we say history repeats itself? We think that everybody understands history as linear, as a ruler on a line. But why should people believe this? Is it because it's common sense? Duh. It seems pretty obvious, right? I mean, think about this. If we were to take a common sense view on the shape of the earth, right, and we didn't have a scientific measuring devices or we didn't have photographs of the earth from space, We might think of the earth as a a flat disk, just this giant flat disk hanging in the middle of space, right? It would be natural to think that if we didn't have like modern technology and pictures and all of those things to show us that the world is round. But there was a point in time where they didn't have these things. And a lot of people in history really did believe that the earth was a giant disk, like a big, just flat pancake in the middle of space, right? Uh, not everybody. It wasn't like super common and widespread, but a, but a few people believe that. You know, if a person lived on a high hill, like overlooking a seaport city, like on the coast, and if these sailing ships came in, one sailing ship came in with bright white sails, and if he had really sharp eyes, he probably would notice something very strange about these ships coming in, right? The tops of the sails 
of this distant ship that was sailing in his direction would appear on the horizon before the rest of the ship does. Right? Now, if he had a telescope, he could really see this clearly. But some people saw this back in the days before telescopes. Now, would the average person who had been told that the world is flat put two and two together and assume something else? Or would he conclude that only... Would he conclude that only a spherical earth would allow him to see the tops of ships' sails before he could see the body of the ship? See, only a handful of people actually saw that many years ago. And they said, wait, the earth's not flat. It's, it's a sphere. It's, a, it's, it's spherical. And what did everybody think of them? They thought they were nut jobs. You're crazy. You're crazy. Right. So, and the, and the same problem of common sense perspective is true of time, okay? With the exceptions of two religions found in the Bible, all ancient religions viewed time not as linear, but circular. They viewed it circular. So they viewed time much like they viewed the seasons, okay? Summer follows spring, um, fall follows summer, and it over and over again, forever. The seasons are circular. They repeat over and over again. So many people, the pagans, Gentile nations, that didn't have Christian worldview, they just thought, well, uh, time must be circular. It must be cyclical. Uh, the, the stars in, in the sky, they circle the world, right? Or so it seems to everyone who charts the stars every night, uh, which the priests in the ancient world did that. And they did it with a really good accuracy, right? And those are viewed as nature's clocks. That's how you can tell what, back then, that's how you can tell what month of the year you were in, is you looked at the stars and you mapped them out, and based on their positions in the sky, you can figure out what time of the year it is, right? And so if these clocks of nature, which are the seasons and the stars, if they both seem to follow the same circular pattern, then why, why couldn't time circulate around in the same way? So why isn't uh, cosmic time essentially circular? Well, how do we know that time isn't circular? Because the Bible tells us, right? The Bible tells us that time isn't circular. It is linear. And time is linear because God created the universe in the beginning. That implies a starting point. And at the end, according to the Bible... He's going to judge it. So that sounds like a straight line to me. Circles, if you just travel the perimeter of a circle, it goes on forever and ever. There is no beginning. There is no end. But the Bible gives us the beginning and the end, so therefore time is linear. What was that? In the middle. The Bible will start off in the middle. Right. Well, you're talking about if it were circular? Yeah. Well, then what sense would it make to say that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth? There is no beginning. In the end, God will judge the world. What does that even mean? Right? If everything is just cyclical and circular, there is no beginning, there's no end. And, but the people who reject the Bible, uh, many of them, pretty much everybody these days, in, at least in the United States, would say that... What are you doing? Oh, stop. It's distracting. Uh, the people who reject the Bible these days in America would say that time is linear, right? That there, is, there was a beginning and there was an end, at least some of them. Uh, but if they reject the Bible, 
they're going to have a difficult time giving a good proof for that, right? What basis or what standard can they go by to say that time is linear and not circular? They don't know what happened at the beginning. They weren't there, right? Uh, and many of them believe that the end will come whenever uh, you know, the sun starts to swell up and engulf the earth and everything burns up and then that's it, right? So, uh, but without the Bible, they can't give a good answer as to why they would believe it's linear. And so, really, many of them have already conceded that time must be circular then. And it's only in modern times have uh, Bible-rejecting people offered any plausible defenses of the idea of linear time. And they needed science to do it, which is the historic product only of a biblical view of time to discover these answers. Um, One of the most popular alternatives to biblical religion has been the uh, doctrine of karma and reincarnation. Any of y'all heard of these things? Karma and reincarnation. Can anyone tell me what those things are? Lucas? Karma is like, if you do good, good will happen to you. If you do bad, bad will happen to you. Yeah, that's one aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Reincarnation is like, when you die, you uh, come back as someone else and you have no memory of your past life. Yeah, someone or something else. Right. And so, yeah, so with these doctrines of reincarnation and karma, people's souls are said to survive the death of their physical bodies. Their souls live on, and their souls get put into uh, either other people or into other living things. You could come back as another human, or if you did some really bad things in your life, you can come back as a cockroach or something like that. Huh? A turtle. You said turtle? Why a turtle? Why not? <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so uh, that's, that's one of the, the popular worldviews that view, do they view time as linear or cyclical? Uh, it's cyclical, yeah. And, and, and these souls, they say, uh, go through thousands or even millions of life experiences. So they live life as a human. They live however long they live, you know, 90 or so years. Then they come back as a mouse. They'll live that life. Then they'll be recycled. If they did good things as a mouse, they'll come back as a, a dog. You know, If they listen to their master and actually fetch the ball and brought it back, they may be upgraded back to being a human again. It's, it, this goes on ad infinitum, forever. And so they, they move upward or downward on some vast chain of being. Uh, and, and they can be all the way from uh, an amoeba, which I guess is like the worst of the worst. If you like really did bad things, I guess you would be brought back as a single-celled amoeba or something. Uh, you can go from that all the way up to a god, even the god, the one, they call it, himself. So there's a ladder of different beings you can be a part of or you can be your soul can be uh united with so these soul what was that yeah right they they view cattle as as uh, uh holy and uh gods almost and aren't like the people like starving and there's just like a bunch of cows yep right same they they view the same thing with mice their 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 villages and populations are just overrun with rodents because if you kill a mouse or you kill a cow, then I, I guess you'll be reincarnated as an amoeba, and they don't. Nobody wants that. So 
Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm not, this isn't like, I'm not super accurate in this. I'm not an expert in karma and re, in Hinduism or anything. But that's generally the idea. So these souls that keep on coming back, they either advance or they get demoted in terms of the net good or evil that they've done in their past life. So if they've done more good than bad, then they'll be they'll they'll uh, advance to a more superior form of life. If they do more bad than good, then they get demoted to being a roach or whatever. And so this advancing or degenerating happens after every lifetime, over and over and over again. And in the end, all souls reunite with the impersonal universal spirit from which existence somehow came. You'll finally reach nirvana and you'll be perfectly one with the universe, right? So that's what they believe. But there's no way to be sure that the process of this creation through separation doesn't start all over again, right? They may be all united. We all may be united into this one thing, and then how do we know it just doesn't start all over again, right? Most believers think of, uh, that think of this think that it does because they believe that ultimately time runs in cycles. It's just going to keep going over and over and over again. And uh, according to this doctrine, it's only when we escape time that we'll actually find peace. And they call it the peace of changelessness. But here's a question. How did we ever get into time in the first place? To get into their worldview, right? The, the, the way to peace is to get out of time in their minds, right? But how do we know that we won't wind up back in time again? Even the phrase wind up points to a world that runs down and then somehow starts again. And so people who believe in karma and reincarnation, they don't consider the truth of the Bible's teachings in Hebrews 9, 27. It says it is appointed once for man to die and after that the judgment. So you don't have to worry when you die that you'll come back as a roach, right? Holy God. Right. What a relief. But if you're not a Christian, I would probably rather come back as a roach than be judged by God. So, couch life for me. Huh? Couch life for you, yeah. Uh, go hang out in the cabinets. Yeah, so uh, the Bible says that time is linear and that time moves in a straight line from God's creation of the world at the beginning to God's final judgment of the world at the end. And only someone who believes in a straight-line development of history can believe in a final judgment by God, right? And for many centuries, only those who believed in the final judgment of God believed in straight-line history. And the Bible teaches a linear view of time because it teaches a unique doctrine of creation, providence, and final judgment. It teaches that the original creation of the universe was by the same personal God who personally sustains the whole universe moment by moment and who in the end is going to judge mankind and renovate his creation at the last day. This is why only those philosophies that have been heavily influenced by the Bible can consistently hold to the idea of a linear history. Okay, And pagan man, they've always preferred to believe in anything rather than uh, than to accept the idea of a final judgment by God. You know, pagan theories of the origin of everything, the beginning of everything, they've always denied God's creation of the universe out of nothing. 
They hold that matter has always existed. Have you ever heard that before? The universe has always existed. Matter has always existed. Or, or they say energy has always existed. Uh, but they don't, they always say that the only thing that can exist is God. <laughs> so pagan theories of the origin of the universe, they always deny that God alone was responsible for the creation. And uh, they say if there ever was a God, uh, he must have worked with pre-existing uh, stuff to create the universe, according to the pagans. He, he had to have stuff to work with. So, uh, any, so any god who was allowed to exist by pagans had to be a co-equal with matter. Why is that so important for a pagan to believe that for their worldview to stand? Think about that. If God is co-equal with matter. Y'all know what I mean by all of this? What is matter? Just let's just break it down. Yeah, everything. Everything in the, the physical universe. Basically, if God in everything in this world... Do what? Basically, if God in physical stuff is equal, is what you're saying. Yeah, but, but why, do they need, why do they need that fact for their pagan worldview to exist? Because they're physical, and that would mean that God rules over them. Right. If if so, if if they were physical, if if God's physical and we're physical, does that mean God has any authority over us? No. As a matter of fact, it's really just a matter of who can be, uh, who can own and manipulate the most matter. That would be the one who is the most powerful. But if God was altogether different than matter and transcendent over it, what does that mean? Can man, yeah, can man ever have authority over God? No. So they have to have God as co-equal with matter in order for man to be viewed as God. Does everybody understand? That's a difficult concept to grasp. Everybody understand that? Yes? No? I see some confused looks. Okay. All right. So, like man, if, if uh, this, this uh, co-equal with matter God... Uh, he also faces the problem of shaping chaotic matter into an orderly universe. So he also battles the resistance of matter. So if he battles the resistance of matter like we do, he's also a prisoner of time like we are. And he's like man, only more so. And we see that with Zeus. We see that with all of the Greek gods. Weren't all the Greek gods just you know, bigger examples of men than we are? With all their sinful tendencies, man is inherently selfish. We really see that with Zeus. Man is inherently, um, he, he lusts uh, inordinately, inordinately in his heart. Didn't we see that from the gods? See, the gods, the, the gods who, uh, who are a part of the physical world, uh, they were something that didn't scare man. And they were something that man could possibly rule over and have control over. He just needed to be more. He just needed to be smarter, and he just needed to have uh, more um, ways to uh, to have better technology in order to master these gods. But if God was completely different than the all matter and all creation, then there's no way you can touch God. Man doesn't like that. Man wants to be God, so that's not going to work. But this view of God as being entirely different than the created universe is exactly what Christians believe. That is Christianity. 
Okay. The Bible teaches that God created the universe out of nothing. And it teaches that God is fundamentally different from creation. That's the creator-creature distinction we talked about a few weeks ago. So man is made in the image of God, but he doesn't participate in the same being with God. Right? So there is an eternal, eternal creator-creature distinction here. That means man can never become God, either by evolution or by revolution. It will never happen. Man will always be man, and God will always rule over him. And modern paganism, including Charles Darwin, they believe that the material universe is all there is, and that's all there ever has been, and that's all that's going to be, and that a long, long series of chance events led to the origin of all the galaxies, uh, it led to all the origin of the stars, the solar system, life, and man. All happened by chance. And until man arrived... The universe was inherently impersonal, according to conventional modern science. Okay? And so only man's presence, according to them, makes the universe personal. Okay? For man alone understands history and can, to some degree, control the future. And man becomes the only true god of the universe by default. That's in their system. But how does, this, how does time fit into that sort of a system? Think about that for a moment. How does time fit into an uncreated universe? Now, there's been a lot of debate among scientists about this. Most scientists who write about this say that the universe is running down like a giant clock. Uh, and, and it's getting cooler. And it's getting more random. Like the, like the universe is devolving into chaos. Uh, or like the universe is like a rusting piece of scrap metal or a dying star that eventually time ends in the heat death of the universe. And they say that basically that without these material energy clocks to keep cosmic time, time actually ends. Time, if there's no clocks, there's no time, according to them. Uh, that's some scientists. Now, a few, what happened? Break all the clocks. Break all the clocks, that's right. So a few other scientists say that uh, the universe is now in the process of expanding. So at the beginning of the universe... Nebula? Huh? Is that the nebula theory? Yes. So at the, there's this big bang at the very beginning, uh, and that big bang is still occurring. So when something explodes, what happens? It, it expands, Right. So some scientists argue that the universe is still in the process of expanding from that Big Bang that happened at the beginning, right? And then eventually, uh, when the universe is finished expanding, it's expanding all that it could do. It's, begin, it's going to begin the process of contracting again over millions and billions of years. It's been expanding over billions of years Eventually, it's going to get to the point where it's going to expand as far as it can go, and it's going to contract again for another millions and billions of years. And then till it goes, it goes all the way back into a singular point, and then guess what happens? <laughs> another explosion, and expands again for another billion, billions of years, and then it goes back in forever, and it never stops. Yes? Why isn't Japan bigger then? What do you mean? You dropped two bombs on them. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yes. So, uh, yes, sir. Um, yes, he does, actually. Yeah. So uh, a lot of scientists believe in this, this expansion idea of time. Uh, so in that sense, time never ends. It's, it's circular. Again, 
But whatever uh, approach modern science takes, obviously neither of them are considering what the Bible teaches at all. And that is that there's a personal God who created matter and created physical energy out of nothing. Okay? And he presently sustains it. And he will judge all people at the last day in terms of either their personal conformity to his law or to the requirement to believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Okay? The Bible insists upon cosmic personalism. Okay, I'll say that again. The Bible insists on cosmic personalism. Do y'all understand what I mean by personalism? See, we're all raised in, inside of a worldview that says the universe is impersonal. That means everything that happens inside of it is random. And that no singular event is connected to any other singular event. And there's no person or thing or mind um, causing the universe to work like it does. It just works like this automatically. It's impersonal, right? Does that sound familiar to all of you? Yeah. But the Bible insists on personalism. So if, if uh, impersonalism is what I described, what would personalism be? What would its opposite be? What, is that, what would that look like? I said that in, in impersonalism, there is no cosmic mind running or controlling anything in the universe. If the world is, if the universe is personal, what would that mean? That, that, that there is intelligence controlling the universe, and that intelligence is bound up into the spirit of God. God controls the world and the universe and everything in it. It's personal. There's a person controlling it. That means there's an actual meaning and direction. There's a will. You know, the universe, according to modern scientists, can't have a will. It, it can't have a desire of where it wants to go. So survival of the fittest. Why would things want to survive to be, and be fit if there's no will or mind controlling it? Who says that's good? Who says that's bad? Right? It's impersonal. It's random. So the Bible is totally different, totally opposite perspective and a totally different worldview. Uh, than the rest of the world. So the Bible affirms that the universe is full of meaning. Why? Because God assigned meaning to it. The world cannot have any meaning unless God assigns meaning to it. So anybody who says that the world is meaningful but yet denies the existence of a God, they're being uh, intellectually schizophrenic. They are not operating consistently in their worldview at all. Why? Because if... if in order for a world to have meaning, somebody has to assign it, right? It seems pretty obvious, right? And so here's the thing. Here's what they really want. They don't want God to assign meaning to it. And if God can't assign meaning to it, to this meaningless universe, guess who can? Man. Man. They want man to assign meaning to it. Huh? Man can. Man tan? Man can. I don't get it. Man Oh, man can. Yes. Right, right. For only the price of 300,000 trillion dollars. Do what? For only the price of $3 trillion. Right. Yes. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, the Bible says that history has purpose only through God's decrees. And modern humanistic science says that history can't have cosmic eternal purpose because there's no God to enforce his decree. 
Okay, so God created the universe, which is man's environment, and then he created man. And then he created the sun, he created the moon, the stars, all of that so man could keep better time. Right? They have become the basis of man's calendars. The sun, the moon, the stars, they serve as man's cosmic clocks. In other words, the heavenly bodies serve mankind in that way. You ever wondered why there are all these random stars in the sky that are so far away that none of us could get to? Right? Have you ever thought about that? Like, how could we be the only ones in the world and no one else is, no one else is in, or in the universe? How can there be no one else in the universe? You know, why would God create all this stuff for us to not see most of it? Well, the, the stuff that we can see, like the stars and all these things, God put these things in the sky so that we can use them to mark time. And so they could serve us in that way. Uh, so they can help us navigate the oceans. We don't really necessarily need uh, those things anymore to navigate the oceans, but God did give it to us, right? And so in Genesis 1, starting in verse 14... It says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs. There it is. And for seasons. And for days and years. So God created the stars so that we can keep time. And it says, Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. I'm happy that the sun is in existence because we can actually see things. Right? And it says, and it was so, and God made two great lights, and the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and he made the stars also. So God's very order of creation was future-oriented. God had a will for the earth, and his creative work of day four, that's what's going on here, it was designed to serve the creature who appeared on day six. So man didn't come about until day six. But the Lord made day, uh, all the things on, uh, that we use to mark time on day four so that could serve us, right? So let's think about what the Bible teaches here. What it teaches can't be made to fit with any other view of the origin of the universe. Any attempt to fit the Bible's account of creation with any other view, uh, they have to ignore or reject what the Bible teaches first, right? So what am I talking about here? Can anybody give any example of a secular worldview that Christians have tried to mesh in with the Bible regarding creation? Yes? Uh, that man and man can coexist together in a relationship. That do what? Man and man can coexist together in Yeah, yeah, that's true. That, that's like downstream from, 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 all of, from what we're talking about here. Yeah. What else? Have any of y'all heard of like Christians trying to... Um, like synthesize evolution with biblical creation? Yeah. yeah, that's one example. Yeah, that's one example. And so, uh, but in order to do that, they have to ignore what the Bible says in the text to be able to do that, right? They have to ignore or reject what the Bible teaches, okay? So first, the earth was created before the sun, the moon, and the stars. How does evolution even possibly work? If, according to Scripture, the earth was created before the sun, moon, and stars. How's that possible? How can any sort of plant or living thing survive or evolve into a plant from a single-celled organism if the sun were not in existence yet? How could it happen in two days? 
Oh wait, the days aren't the days aren't literal days in the Bible. They represent eons. They represent uh, millions of years. See, in order for an evolutionary worldview to to try to synthesize that with the Bible, you're going to have to compromise what the Bible says in order to do it. Okay. The earth did not evolve out of the stars of the sun. It was created before them, according to the scripture. So how can you fit this account into any scientific view of evolution? Right? Second, the heavenly bodies, the stars, they were created by God in order to give light to the earth. But more than this, they were created to become signs. Signs must be interpreted, right? Interpreted by whom? Man, right? Signs for what purpose? For man's purpose. So, in other words, the sun, the moon, and the stars were created in order to serve man who hadn't been created yet. So, the very sequence of creation points to the future. See, modern Darwinism self-consciously tries to deny any trace of purpose in the history of the universe until life appears. Okay, But the Bible teaches that life was created the day after the creation of the sun, the moon, and the stars. How do you fit this into any account of Darwinism? See, the biblical account of creation, if you take it literally, as you should, will automatically lead us to reject all other rival explanations of time. Okay, Only if we abandon the plain and the clear meaning of the words of the Bible can we merge the Bible's account of creation into any other interpretation or origin of the universe. Okay? The Bible refers to the creation with the words in the beginning. Right? That tells us that time began at the creation. The biblical view of time can't be separated from the biblical account of creation. And if we make any attempt to separate them, that's going to lead to a rejection of both the biblical view of time and the biblical view of creation. They're inseparable. They cannot be taken apart. Right? Everybody in agreement there? Yeah. Time, above all, is covenantal. Time is covenantal. Time conforms to God's decree. Now, if we study covenant set forth in Scripture, right? We're going to see that there are five aspects of God's covenant, okay? And it's really easy to, um, to memorize the five aspects of the covenant. I wish I had a marker. I guess I do. It's easy to use it because we have this acronym that we can use. And it's easy since y'all are in Greek. We can use the word theos to do that. And theos, of course, means God. So this is the five-point covenantal model that runs everything in the world. This is how God has orchestrated covenants. So what's the T stand for? It stands Time. for, no, transcend, oh, I'm telling you how to write this, transcendence, eminence. God, in order for any covenant to work, you have to have... First of all, what is a covenant? Can anybody tell me what a covenant is, Benjamin? An agreement between two um, beings. Right, an agreement between two beings. And in particular, with God's covenant, you have to have somebody that's transcendent and imminent. So what does transcendence mean? Transcendence means just what we were talking about a minute ago. We're saying that God is nothing like his creation. 
God is utterly distinct from his creation. God is transcendent over his creation. So man can never be like God. He can never be God because God is transcendent over him, right? But God isn't all the way out there in the middle of nowhere, totally distant from us, right? We can talk to God. We can pray to God. Um, we can trust God with, with the cares of our lives. So he's not totally, he is transcendent, but he's also imminent. That means he's close by, right? He's so imminent that he has become a man, just like us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So not only is he over everything, not only is he God over us, he's God with us, right? So that's transcendence and eminence. Okay, what's the next one? The H stands for hierarchy. What does that mean? What's, what's hierarchy mean? Like the role, like uh, superiority. Like. Superiority or inferiority. That means there's a chain of command. There's authority and there, there's, sub, there's subordinates, right? So in a covenant, you're always going to have someone who has a higher authority than the other. So how can we relate this to God? Does that, that basically means that Jesus Christ is Lord and we are not. Okay? God is over and above everything in this world. Everything that he has a covenant over, which is everything, he is over. So the covenant is always going to have hierarchy. It's always going to have a chain of command. Okay? What's the next one? Ethics. Every covenant is going to have a system of laws, terms and conditions by which to uh, operate un in under the covenant, right? Uh, if you sign a contract with someone to do something, let's say you, um, you're buying a house or something like that, you, you go into a contract with someone else to buy this house. Uh, there are terms and conditions. Let's say you're trying to get a loan for a house. There are terms and conditions that you have to fulfill in order for the covenant not to be broken. What's the main one as the home buyer that you have to fulfill? House. Pay your bill on time, right? You, you've, got, you've been uh, lent this money to buy a home. Well, you have, to pay this, you have to pay whatever the monthly note is every month. That's your end of the bargain. And what is it for the person who lent the money? Don't overtax them. <laughs> no, no, not really. Not, not overtaxing them. They can't call the loan early. Depending on the type of contract, there are some contracts where you can call a loan early. Or uh, you can't just say, all right, all $200,000 is due tomorrow. Wait, that's not what we agreed to in the contract. So there's a, systems of, there's a system of laws and ethics that run, uh, that run inside of the contract that both parties have to live by. And that's the same thing with God's covenant, right? We're in covenant with Christ. But those, that covenant has terms and conditions, right? What are some of the current terms and conditions we have to live by? Follow his law. Huh? Follow exactly. Those are the ethics. His literal laws are the ethics. Every time you read about, in, about the laws in the first five books of the Bible, uh, you're reading the, the ethical, you're reading all the fine print in the contract. That's what you're doing. Okay? Good. What's next? What's the O? Oaths. If you fulfill your terms and conditions in the contract, good things happen to you, right? Eventually, you get to pay off your home and you own it. That's a blessing. 
what happens if you don't pay your, your house payment on time over a period of they months? Take they take it from you. Exactly. They repossess the home and you're kicked out. So there are positive and negative sanctions involved with obedience to the ethics. And that's what oaths are. So you make an oath. Um, so that's, that's a part of God's covenant. What happens if you do not trust upon Christ for your salvation? The ultimate cursing. Hell, right? What happens if you are say you follow Christ, but you live a life of not following his law? You're basically a covenant breaker. You've broken the covenant. And do, will you get blessings associated with following and obeying the laws? No, you get cursing. You'll get cast out, right? All right, good. And then the next part is, can anybody guess? Succession. Succession, that's right. After I started writing it. Yeah, succession. What's that mean? Where is this thing going in the long term? Does this thing have a future? Is the covenant going to stop with the one who originally made it with God, or will it keep going? Like God's covenant with Abraham. Did it stop with Abraham? No. What did God promise to Abraham? That not only he would experience blessings, but what? The entire world would experience the blessings that Abraham uh, would have as being a part of this covenant. So there in God's covenant is covenant succession. So this is a really easy way to memorize the five aspects of the covenant. Theos, transcendence, eminence, hierarchy, ethics, oaths, succession. Okay, I'm not good at memorizing things, but I just did this completely by memory because of this little acronym here. So it's helpful. Okay, so those are those five aspects. And we can find all five aspects in every human government and every human institution. We can find all of this, even in the ungodly ones. Okay? Um, the five-point covenant is an inescapable concept. That means it's built into every aspect of the creation whether we like it or not, okay? So, and it's funny, several books of the Bible are structured in terms of these five points, like Exodus and Deuteronomy. If you look at the outline of the book, you'll see uh, these five points laid out throughout the book. Uh, we see it in Exodus, we see it in Deuteronomy, we see it in Matthew, we see it in Romans and Revelation. And, and also the Ten Commandments are laid out this way. So commandments one through five are laid out exactly like this. And then it starts over with six through ten being laid out exactly like this. Okay? Yes, sir. Yes, you can. Um, <clears throat> so even the structure of the five books of Moses has this five-point covenant model. Right? It's five books. So Genesis. Genesis is the book about God's transcendence and eminence as him as being creator and ruler. Right? Uh, Exodus, that's God being Lord and Master over the Israelites. That's hierarchy. Right? Uh, what's the next book? Uh, Leviticus. That's, what is Leviticus filled with? Laws, ethics. There it is. And Numbers. Numbers is about what? God's judgments or blessings on Israel, uh, whether, depending on whether they obey the laws or not, and judgment on Israel's enemies. That's oaths, oaths and judgments. And then Deuteronomy is Moses' last words before he dies. He's basically uh, ratifying God's covenant and passing it on to the next generation. That's succession. It's all there. 
And so we can find this five-point covenantal model even in the Bible's account of time. Okay? So let's think about this for a second. Number one, transcendence eminence. Well, God is in complete control over time. He's the master. And he sustains it providentially. Right? We can say that God is transcendent over time. Okay? But he also reveals himself in history. Right? Because he's present over the course of history. He makes clear both his control over time and his presence with man in time. And he he says this. uh, He says, I am the Lord. And there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun. That's a, that's a time marker. Y'all get that? The, the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. Wow. So he announces his control over time through his control over the day and the night. That's what he's saying here. Those are signs of time. That's transcendence, eminence, okay? History is personal because God is personal and he's in control of it, okay? Uh, God's holy word is transcendent. And because of that, it can't fail. Isaiah 55, verse 8 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my words be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper into the thing where I sent it. So we can see God's total control and transcendence over time right here. Okay? And we can see the linear nature of God's history. We can see the rain falling down and bringing forth good crops. And, he, and it does so, not impersonally. The rain just doesn't fall randomly and makes things grow. No, God sent the rain here. Anytime it rains here, it's sent here with a purpose. And the purpose as, is, as the Bible says, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. That's why we have rain, to be able to have water to drink and food to eat. Right? All right. So second, history is covenantal. Uh, Time is covenantal because God establishes man over the creation in history. So God is over man, there's hierarchy, and man is over the creation. There's more hierarchy. It's a chain of command. And so man represents God to the creation using the tools of dominion to do it. What are those tools of dominion? I said this over the past few weeks. Huh? What are the tools? What's a tool of dominion? Man, our retention's not so good. The thing I've sat spent the last like six weeks talking about. No, no. The tool of dominion is his law. Remember, it's his law. So man represents God to the creation using God's law to extend his own dominion over the earth. So there's a hierarchy in the creation: God over man and man over creation, and a, a personal representative who images God is put in charge. We're made in the image of God. We're put in charge of the earth, right? History, again, is always personal. It's never impersonal. Time is always personal. And God is sovereign over history, and man is God's designated agent over history. So man answers to God as a steward and a manager over time. And this leads us to the third point 
of God's covenantal structure, and that's ethics. Okay, History is covenantal. Time is covenantal because it is ethical. So God brings forth his perfect will within the boundaries of time. Jesus told us to pray in Matthew 6, verse 10, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Okay? So there's ethics. There's a law. We're responsible uh, to bring forth uh, God's kingdom as we take dominion by his law over time. Okay. Fourth. I know we're wrapping up here. Fourth. History is covenantal. Why? It's an easy one. What is, what is the fourth covenantal point in this model? Oaths, right? It means God judges. He judges. So time is covenantal because God judges it. Men prosper in time, in history, in terms of their obedience to God's law. And they are cursed in history for disobeying it. Paul writes, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of them that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So God is the judge of history as it unfolds, not man. Man cannot do it. Uh, he is the only one that can judge history. All right. And fifth, there is an inheritance for God's people. There's succession. That's point number five. So after the final judgment, does time end essentially? In a sense it does. But God, it's in a sense God extends time and extends history to parallel his own existence. Does God exist in time? No, he doesn't. So God extends history and he parallels his own existence to everything else in eternity, right? So time as we know it now will be no more. So Revelation 21, 7 says this, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But there's also disinheritance with covenant breakers. The next verse says this, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so because time is covenantal, man finds himself facing moral decisions in history. Time, once again, I'll say it again, it's never impersonal. It's never random. It's never meaningless. And because Adam rebelled in history, the processes within history have fallen under the curses of God. Even time itself is cursed, right? And, and because time is cursed, now time has become a burden for man, right? Just like his labor has become a burden. Now time is a threat to man because once time is removed, what happens? In the end, what happens? Huh? Well, no, no, no. For the, for, the, uh, for the cursed man, for the disinherited man, when time ends, when does time end for people? When they die. When they die. What happens after you die? You go to heaven or hell. The judgment. God judges you. Yeah. And so man without Christ uh, is destined for cursing, right? So uh, time is now a threat to man. Because once time is removed, man is brought into the presence of God as a judge. Yeah. So time is no longer assured for man. You know, do we know whether we're going to live next week? Do any of us really know? No, we don't. And if we're not in Christ, what hope does that give us? None. 
And in Christ, it gives us all the hope in the world. But uh, without Christ, it doesn't give us any. And so this, there's this threat of time being removed from us and taken away from us, right? And, and that wasn't a problem before Adam and Eve fell, but now it is. And see, in the garden before all of this, Adam could eat from the tree of life and have eternal time. So time would never be a threat to him. But after he fell, what happened? God deliberately removed him from the vicinity of that tree so that he couldn't take of its fruit and live forever. And all of that obviously points to Jesus Christ. Jesus, who's the new tree of life? It's Jesus. He's the one that gives eternal life now. If we eat of his fruit, if we partake of his body, this is my body shed for you. Uh, for the uh, um, now, it's, now it's 1 Corinthians escaping my mind. I had it and I lost it. Come on, y'all say this every week. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's the last part of it. Uh, oh, I guess I lost it. Uh, for the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. There it is. Yeah, so Jesus Christ is the tree of life, and we can partake of his fruit and of uh, his blood in order to have eternal life. And time will be a blessing to us by God's grace, right? But we're born in sin, so initially time is a curse. Uh, for even the temporal blessings that we receive can become curses on us in retrospect after death. Uh, because the more blessings the covenant breaker, not being in Christ, received in his life, the greater his punishment will be in eternity. And Jesus says in Luke 12, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. So it's going to require God's grace in history to take uh, time's curse away. So we're all prisoners of time, right? In a sense, we are. You know, there's this statement, nobody gets out of life alive. That's a cynical statement, but it describes what kind of predicament we're in, right? Uh, but prisoners can make good use of time, right? Joseph was a prisoner in Egypt, but God used this experience to do what? To eventually make him a ruler. Uh, Paul was a prisoner in the jails of Rome. But what did Paul do in prison? He wrote all of these wonderful letters that changed the world, right? So time is a burden, but it can be used to overcome the curse. And time's testing period can and should be used to demonstrate uh, to be a testimony of our faithfulness to God. We can use time. God has redeemed the time for us as Christians. The curse of time can become an opportunity for us to receive God's blessings and to share his blessings. And it all depends on how the prisoners of time serve their sentences, right? It uh, all depends on how they redeem the time. And we'll talk about how to do that uh, next time. How do we redeem the time as Christians?